Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for January the 5th. A prominent Harvard astronomer is more confident than ever that an alien probe visited us three years ago. So we're going to reach out to Paul Delaney, our space expert, and find out what the rest of the community think. Is this fact or is it fiction? And travel agents are looking for help from the government. Airlines have come calling for their commissions that they made on canceled trips. Before they pay you, the customer, back, they're asking for their money back. We'll discuss. But first, our hospitals are at risk of being overwhelmed, we know, because of the holiday COVID rule breakers. And looks like there are quite a few rule breakers, according to a recent Leger poll, reveals 48% of Canadians visited family over the holidays. You know, the one thing that this poll doesn't examine is the degree of visiting that we're talking about. Like, were you in the kitchen, like, normally hanging out with somebody, fixing food with them, maskless? Or were you doing a door drop with your mask on, you know, six feet away saying, yeah, Merry Christmas, this sucks, but this is the way it's got to be this year. So welcome to the show, Dr. Michael Warner, head of critical care at the Michael Guerin Hospital. Doctor, it's good to have you on, although every time we have you on, I know it's it's not for good news. It's usually to describe how, how problematic things are getting when it comes to our hospital ICU rooms. How are things looking today? Well, Kelly, today we have 369 patients with COVID-19 in Ontario's ICUs, and we've tied our daily high of 45 new patients overnight. So, you know, you know we're we're breaking records in the wrong way. And uh, again, it's the GTA hospitals that are most affected, but hospitals in London, Kitchener, Waterloo, uh, Windsor um, are seeing significant amount of COVID activity. And, and there's actually more COVID patients than there typically have been in the Ottawa area. So you know, things are progressing as as has been anticipated. Now, I know that we were um, talking about this ages ago, and the number, the magic number was 150 cases. After that, we're in the danger zone. So how, you know, how are we coping with these extra cases? And how is it that we've, you know, we're still going? We haven't seen a, a collapse that everybody's warning about. Yeah, so the uh, the 150 number, I, I don't think is completely accurate because it depends completely on where you are. So there are hospitals in Toronto that have canceled elective surgeries for months. There are some hospitals that haven't canceled elective surgery but are on the verge of that. On January 1st, the ministry sent a letter to all the hospital CEOs saying that every ICU in the province has to prepare to run at 115% capacity. That came out on New Year's Day. So uh, you know, some hospitals have lots of space, but if you show up to an emergency department in Toronto with um, a care requirement that needs an ICU bed, there's no ICU bed. The fact that there's a bed in Thunder Bay or Kingston or Ottawa doesn't help you in the immediate term. So I think that's the challenge. That's Well, there's wide open capacity at some hospitals. At others, there isn't. And uh, most of the people do live in the greater Toronto area. So we're, we're hoping that we're not, we don't have to de- defer uh, emergent care. That hasn't happened yet. And, and I hope that we can avoid that situation completely. What would that look like? Uh, that would look like people dying because they, they can't get the care they need. Uh, you know, you show up with a, a perforated ulcer and uh, the operating room is full because there are patients in there surviving on anesthetic gas machines because we've run out of ventilators and there's no operating room to perform the surgery, no bed for you to go to afterwards. I mean, that's that's horrific. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that will happen, but that's what it would look like. And, I'm, uh, I, I'm just going to, I just have visions of the MASH 4077, which sounds weird, but um, would we not... Uh, do all that we can to, to to save someone in that situation. Absolutely, I think you know if it was heading that way, then you know triage medicine um, becomes the way that we practice medicine. So 
you know, potentially field hospitals, people working beyond their scope of practice, doing everything we can to save as many lives as possible. There's lots of elasticity and creativity within the healthcare system, so we would do our best not to uh, leave any patient behind. But uh, every system has its breaking point, and I think we're far from that right now, but uh, I don't even want to come up against it. You brought up field hospitals. There's one that's just opening at Joseph Brandt. What do you know about it? We are going to talk about it later on in the hour with the folks from Joseph Brandt. But what do you know about uh, these field hospitals? Who would they take care of? And do you expect that we'll see more of these popping up? You know, at the provincial critical care table, we talked about this you know, in wave one, but you know, inspect everything out. So the plans are in place to do this on a, on a broader scale. But I think individual hospitals may create these, and they may not be for COVID patients. It may be for less acute patients. I'm not entirely sure what Joe Brandt is doing. But I think each hospital has to look at their own patient population, the amount of COVID they're caring for, their bed capacity and healthcare work capacity, and make sure they can support their local community. But when we, you know, I'm back to the, I know I'm back to MASH and I don't know why I'm stuck on MASH right now. Uh, but when we talk about field hospital, I picture a tent. Is is that a reasonable um, thing that could happen or do we have enough actual space within buildings that we wouldn't be setting up a tent? I think if this had to be done in a, in a mass scale, we would be using existing buildings and just repurposing them as opposed to tents and parking lots. Uh, although those may be required, in, you know, in certain sites, but I think we're we're talking about uh, you know, large-scale buildings with equipment moved in. But uh, I would say that we're, we're a long way from that, uh, and I hope we can avoid it entirely. But to avoid it, we would have to cancel non-COVID-related care to a much greater degree, which I think is what's in our future. I was talking about how uh, Leger Poll released uh, the results. They, they asked people, Canadians, uh, if they visited family over the holidays, and 48% admitted they had. Now, we don't know what capacity they had visited. You know, I did a door drop uh, on Christmas Eve for my nieces and nephews to make sure they had their presents. We were all masked up. I was outside. They were inside. We were six feet away with the door open. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess guilty is charged, but it's not like I had a mask off and ate a meal with somebody inside my house or had anybody else inside my house or was in anyone, uh, anyone else's house. Um, you have said that the, that we are only expecting a worse situation in, in coming weeks, uh, I guess based on Christmas and New Year's. When do you expect things to kind of really crest based on, the poll and what we're hearing about people gathering. Well, Kelly, you know, at our, at our assessment center this past weekend, 60 to 70% of the people who were diagnosed with COVID-19, because we do all our own contact tracing at Michael Guerin Hospital, admitted to in-person gatherings with non-household members over the holidays. Uh, and so it's just a matter of time before, you know, the impact of those interactions, especially multiplied over the entire population of the province, uh, lead to further COVID-19 uh, cases. So I think that mid-January, you know, really a week and a half, two weeks from now, we'll start to see um, a significant impact in terms of case numbers for sure, and then ultimately hospitalizations, IC admissions, and unfortunately deaths as a result of those interactions. You know, the people who are turning positive are not the same people who live in who live in congregate settings by default or who work in factories. It's people who now you know made decisions to get together. You know for gatherings that I guess to them seemed innocuous, but to COVID are an opportunity for spread. And uh, and people are getting COVID-19 because of those interactions. And uh, if we they haven't been positive yet, their family members, uh, we know that most cases are spread within households. So unfortunately, it's only a matter of time before 
uh, those case contacts, uh, some of them anyway, uh, become positive. So, so um, unlike the first wave where we were seeing um, people coming in that, that are essential workers that couldn't self-isolate, uh, they just didn't have the place to go, this second wave is going to be people that have made choices that could have avoided possibly... Yeah, I mean, uh, that's. I was in the mainstream media before Christmas asking people to try to avoid the situation that people couldn't avoid. You know, don't put yourself in the same situation that other people were forced into. And and some people, I guess, made their own choice to not follow public health advice. And and, and that's really unfortunate. I hope people don't get COVID, but if they do, um, you know, that will impact the healthcare system um, and the more people who get it. Uh, you know, I, I think the most important thing, though, moving forward, we, we can't change people's past behaviors is, is vaccination. I think that's really the only way out of this for us. And uh, that's where I think really all of our focus should be on getting needles into arms as quickly as possible. Yeah. What do you think about the fact yesterday we were talking about this on the show uh, with uh, Dr. McGeer about the fact that there are tons of vials of um, uh, of the vaccine in fridges across the province, yet we haven't found a way to put it into people's arms. Are you equally upset about the slowness of this vaccine rollout? It's hard to put into words how disappointed I am. I mean, the cost of holding inventory in this type of business is death. I mean, to have 100000 in the fridge is unacceptable. You know, we, we want to inoculate 10 million people in this province. That's uh, 70% of 14.5 million. Each person needs two shots. That's 20 million shots. That'll take 200 days at a rate of 100,000 per day. We did 4,800 yesterday. Uh, wh- where is the plan? I think what makes me most concerned is that we can't afford to screw this up, Kelly. I mean, mm-hmm. with, with testing, we were promised on September 16th that we'd have 50,000 tests a day in a month or so. We didn't reach that till November 27th. We were told the contact tracing, you know, we need the volunteers. Those volunteers never got hired. Like, there is no margin for error here. We need to treat this like a business in the business of saving lives where inventory needs to go out as quickly as it comes in, where we need to vaccinate healthcare workers and long-term care home residents all this week because the shots we put in people's arms today will prevent death and also will help keep healthcare workers available. How fast you go six months from now only determines how quickly we open the economy. Speed matters now in terms of saving lives. So the return on investment of each shot right now is much more significant than it will be down the road. Our producer, Chris Creston, uh, sent me a story yesterday, and it was about long-term health care workers. Some of them don't want to get the vaccine. And I immediately thought, I understand we can't force people to get the vaccine, but we can say if you're allowed to go to work, if you're putting someone at risk. Uh, should people in long-term care that decide uh, that they don't want to get that vaccine be told, uh, no thanks, we're going to pass on you until this virus, this pandemic is under control? So all, all I'm going to say about that is that people have a right to choose whether or not to be vaccinated. But I think that if the government showed the degree of urgency that I think is necessary, those people who are on the fence would get swept up in in kind of the overall wave of everyone getting vaccinated. If you saw you know, trucks driving through the streets giving vaccines like they do in Israel, you're going to come out of your apartment and get that because you don't want to miss out on what could save your life or protect your neighbor. So I think that type of wartime mentality is really what we need. I don't think mm. manda- vaccines should ever be mandated, but I think that people on the fence uh, need to have good information on making decisions and they need to have the vaccine available to them as quickly as possible. Dr. Michael Warner, thank you very much. I appreciate your time as always. Take care, Kelly.
I read this headline today. The CBC Canadian travel agents are calling for a bailout after being forced to repay commissions on cancelled vacations. And Chris reached out to uh, Judith Coates, who is the co-founder of the Association of Canadian Independent Travel Advisors, who joins the show right now for clarification. Judith, I understand from what Chris is telling me, this really, this headline is a bit misleading. Yes, that's absolutely right. We are not asking for a bailout. Um, We are actually in talks with government officials asking them for um, uh, protection for travel advisors when they are um, giving bailouts to airlines. So it's the airlines that are getting the bailouts. We just want protection so that we don't, we aren't forced to pay our earned commissions back. Right. You guys, I understand, are working, you know, I know a few people in the travel industry working harder than ever. You're scrambling, you're trying to help out your clients. What your, your goal is to stay alive, stay in business, make it through this pandemic and come out on the other side when we are ready to travel and safe to travel again. Uh, but the only, the real way that, um, travel agents make money is, uh, mainly through commissions. Now you're being told, by uh, some travel companies to repay commissions that you've earned, even though you've been jumping through hoops trying to uh, make things good for people that have had their trips canceled on them. Can you give us a little more insight into what travel agents are going through? Yes, absolutely. Well, we've been without really without revenue for the last 10 months, as many industries have been. And um, But like you said, we've been working harder than ever because of cancellations and trying to repatriate Canadians and, and working on their behalf for insurance claims and uh, travel vouchers and then now refunds. And we do, I do want to make it clear that we absolutely support the option of consumer refunds. We've, we think that our clients do deserve to get their money back. However, um, we've been doing all this mon- this work on behalf of the airlines and travel companies and with no pay whatsoever for the past 10 months. And now they're coming back to us and saying that the, the commissions that they paid to us, uh, in some cases, it was, it was back in 2019, so it's already been taxed and spent. <laughs> they're coming back to us and saying, um, you need to pay that commission back in order for your client to get a refund. And we don't feel that that's fair for us to be held over a barrel like that. Give us an example of, uh, of one story. Uh, I understand that WestJet sent out a written statement to travel agencies in November. Can you tell us a little bit about what was contained in that statement and, and uh-huh. what they were asking you for? Yeah, back in November, WestJet made the announcement that they would start refunding uh, passengers for trips that were canceled due to COVID. And um, so, but they said that it would take between six and nine months. And uh, we believe that that's probably because they thought that would be the timeline for when they started getting bailout money from the government. And it was a really great PR move for WestJet to say that. Um, they, they were the only ones that came out and um, made that statement. However, in the, the uh, notice that they sent to us, there was um, one in the Q&A section, there was one portion that said, in order for your clients to receive a refund, you must pay back the commission that you earned on that file. So why would that be? Why, why do they want you to pay back the commission? Well, it's the way that their, um, it's their business model is structured. Um, and there is, uh, in their terms and conditions, I believe, like I don't see the contracts because I work for a host agency, so they work out the contracts with the airlines and the travel companies, but in their contract, um, there is a clause for when a customer cancels. 
So if a, if a client or a traveler just decides to cancel their trip, then we are left in order, um, we are left, they take the commission away from us because they lose the money um, if, if uh, they were covered by insurance. So the insurance company would pay them back. In, um, and so that happens very, very rarely. Mm-hmm. But now they're falling back on that clause in order to claw back all their commissions. Give us an idea. Of, yeah, that that is just, I mean, that would mean a lot of people's businesses would mm-hmm. uh, completely go under. So give us an idea well, of how many. Yeah, especially the total amount, it's going to amount to $200 million uh, for all of Canadian travel advisors. There are only about 24,000 travel advisors in Canada. And so that amounts to like an average of 8,500 per travel advisor. Some travel advisors aren't hit so hard. Um, others who do things like wedding groups and um, a lot of like March, January, February, or March and March are our highest volume travel business is when we, we do our highest volumes. And so those were the trips that when they were canceled, those were the ones that were hit hardest. And we've got a lot of um, travel advisors in our association that are looking at having to pay like $30,000 back just for one wedding group. That they don't have. That's yeah, the commission that they earned already, and then they're asked, being asked to pay it back because that trip was canceled. So, how would the government bailout to the airlines help you? We're asking the government to um, in, uh, make their bailout conditional on protection of our commissions, and we feel that the airlines and the government can work that out between themselves, whether it means that they get an X between all of the airlines and travel companies, they get an extra $200 million. Um, it wouldn't take very much in the grand scheme of things because they're asking for billions of dollars. Right. And so we're, we're either asking the government to um, include that in the bailout package or the airlines need to do it as a cost of doing business going to be a business loss for them. But if they're getting all this loan money from the government at zero interest rates, we feel that that's something that they can handle. Um, another option is uh, something that Australia and New Zealand have, have done is they have actually, the government has actually given travel advisors a, um, a uh, recovery package to cover lost commissions. However, we don't feel that the onus should be on us to go to the government and ask them to to give us money because it's the, it's the airlines that it's taking it are taking it away. And so we, we believe that they should not just, they should just not be taking it away from us because for number one, we don't have the money to pay it back. Mm -hmm. And um, we don't, if, if the airline had some kind of a recovery benefit like Australia and New Zealand have, it might take months and months for us to get that money back. And the government would have to set up a whole, um, a whole division to look after all that money. And we don't think that it should be on the government's shoulders. We think the airlines need to deal with this. Well, and, you know, with the government now, uh, a lot of MPs uh, losing their their positions because of travel that they did out of the country or to warmer destinations, it's certainly not helping your cause at all. It's punctuating the fact that if it isn't essential travel, the government's advising people not to go away. So if that's the case, you know, how do travel agents survive? How, how do they mm-hmm. make money and how do they repay their commission if there's nothing coming in? Yeah, there's absolutely nothing. And we we do, the only thing that as independent travel advisors, the only thing that we qualify for is the recovery benefit. We, we can't apply for any uh, small business loans because the threshold is too high for um, 
expenses that you have to have. And we don't pay salaries. We're dependent. We don't pay um, storefront rent. What's so, the difference um, between a travel agent and a travel advisor, just out of curiosity? Oh, it's uh, terminology. Uh, it's the same. Advisor, agent. We don't believe we're agents because when you say agent, it means you're working on behalf of the airlines and the travel okay. companies. When you say you're an advisor, it means you're working on behalf of the client. And that's what we do. We, our clients are who we work for. And that's why we've been working so hard over the last 10 months without any revenue. Boy, I feel for you. I really hope that the government comes through. Uh, how far along have you gotten in your uh, lobbying of the government to help you out? Well, we've met with over 160 MPs and uh, government officials and policy advisors since um, the fall. And that, this week, we're beginning to ramp that up again. And uh, we're just going to keep on until we can um, speak to every person in the House of Commons who will listen to us. Well, best of luck uh, to you. I, I really want to thank you for sharing your story today. I think it's an important one that we uh, understand is going on. There's a lot of people that are being affected by this pandemic, and we're often heard about people that work for airlines, but we don't hear about the travel agents on the other side of the travel advisors like yourself. Thanks so much, Kelly. Thanks for joining us. As Judith Coach, she's co-founder of the Association of Canadian Independent Travel Advisors. A Harvard astronomer is, he says he's more confident than ever that we were visited by an alien probe in 2017. He's doubling down, said this might be his most important and controversial hypothesis at, during his time at uh, leading Harvard's astronomy department. He's been there uh, from 2011 till now and he's talking about Oumuamua which was like this cigar-shaped rock you remember that back in 2017 that visited us here to talk about it because he knows much more than I do about space Paul Delaney welcome to the show hi Kelly happy new year to you happy new year to you as well so this was uh, apparently the first interstellar object to visit us and this Harvard professor has written a book on it is he just trying to sell his book or is he on to something here I don't think he's onto something. Uh, maybe he is, in fact, uh, trying to you know, generate some sales for the book. I'm, I'm not going to be disingenuous and suggest that's his real motive. But the evidence that he's hanging his hat on is, is pretty thin on the ground with respect to Humayamea. Okay, so let's talk about Humayamea. Uh, what exactly do we think it is, and what evidence is he presenting? Right. Well, we think it was. Well, we know it was an interstellar object. So it came from outside of our solar system. Its speed through the inner solar system has enough to get it clear of the gravitational pull of our sun. So it is an interstellar object. Uh, we are of the view that it's an interstellar asteroid. It was uh, a couple of hundred meters in length and interestingly enough, much thinner. So perhaps only 50 meters uh, or less in diameter. So it was a long cigar shaped object. All of the images that people see, though, are artist impressions. We never got close enough to this object to actually snap a, a photograph of it, per se. We've only ever shown it as a point of light. But observing that point of light gives us insight into the shape of the object. And the most credible one is either a thin cigar shape or a relatively uh, thin disc-type object. All of the evidence that we have of this object, and it was only observed for about a two-month span from October through December of 2017, we picked it up after its closest approach to the Earth and to the Sun. So we were collecting data on its way out, and therein lies part of the problem. We weren't able to observe it for a very long period of time, and not when it was very close to us. But all of the evidence that we did collect, and there was a mountain of it, 
suggests that it was of an asteroidal nature, that is to say its composition was very rock-like, very similar to asteroids in our own solar system. Its color signature, very reminiscent of what we call D-type asteroids, uh, and it had all of the, the trappings of a comet or an asteroid. The, the me, problem... Yep, go on. Can I just ask you, you mentioned the color signature. How would we know what color it was or the color signature? Is that something different um, when you're talking about an object in space if we couldn't actually see it? Good question. If we were... Uh, when you look at an object, it's giving off light. It, it is visible to us because it's giving off wavelengths of light that your eye can see. But it's also giving off wavelengths of light that your eye can't see. But we can see that, what we call spectroscopically. We take that light and basically pass it through a prism and break it down into its differing components of light. A little bit like white light passing through a raindrop gives us the spectrum that we see as a rainbow. That type of analysis gives us information about not only the types of wavelengths of light this object is reflecting, but the intensity of those wavelengths. And then when we put that together, we can recreate what it would look like if we were up close to it and were able to see it visually with our own eye. And so when I say it's of a reddish appearance, it's based upon its spectral signature. And that, that's something we've got a lot of experience with for objects in our own solar system. Okay. Now, I I also heard that the fact that it sped up instead of slowed down as it passed through, um, you know, past the sun was one of the reasons why he came up with this controversial hypothesis. He thinks that it somehow had some sort of sail on it that would allow it to propel itself. Thoughts on that? Correct. In fact, that that is the piece of evidence which even the science community has difficulty explaining, uh, that as it moved through the inner solar system, its course deviated a little bit away from what we call its gravitational signature. So as, as objects move around the sun, they follow a path which is well defined by Newton's laws of motion. And asteroids, comets, they all do that. But if you give off some extra gas, uh, so like a balloon expelling air, you can actually change the course of your balloon. You can change the course of an object with this added thrust. And it's really just an outgassing, a little bit like you driving down the road. The car is propelling you forward. But if you've got a really strong wind that comes to you from the side, you can change your course. And it wasn't the car's idea. Well, the mm -hmm. same sort of thing as far as asteroids and comets are concerned. If they get heated, they can what we call outgas. They can give off material. Uh, and we see that in the form of cometary tails. But in the process of doing that, you push on the rock. You push on the comet or the asteroid. We saw this happen with Haumea and what Loeb is suggesting is that because we couldn't see the cometary tail, we couldn't find the signature of that material, then the propellant wasn't natural, that it was artificial in nature. And that really is his only big piece of evidence that says it obviously therefore is a spaceship. <clears throat> Okay, I also heard that he might uh, he might not think it was necessarily a spaceship, but a, a piece of space junk. Is that anything else people are, are talking about? Well, that actually is a slightly more credible theory in my mind, because this object is moving at a very, very slow pace. If this was an interstellar ship of some description, it's going to take decades to clear our solar system and tens of thousands of years to go between the stars. That's a very leisurely stroll around our galaxy. We've been monitoring this object from afar, and it hasn't done anything else unusual in terms of its, its path out of the solar system. So, you know, if it was a spaceship, 
with aliens on board, they're moving incredibly slowly. Why would you do that? Uh, So is it a piece of space junk? Uh, Again, it's possible, but why did it all of a sudden propel itself in this unusual fashion out of the inner solar system? I mean, the, the bottom line to it, from my point of view, is there is credible evidence to suggest that it was of a meteor, uh, of an asteroidal or cometary nature. And we see comets and asteroids in our solar system outgas all the time. Just because we didn't see the, the cometary tail doesn't mean it wasn't there. I've already told you that you know this object was well on its way out of the solar system before we even saw the darn thing. And so it's not at all unreasonable to think that it did give off some measure of outgassing, which changed the direction of motion. And by the way, it was a very, very subtle change. Uh, and we just didn't see the cometary material. That, to me, is far more likely than you know, an alien spacecraft. This guy, the fact that he uh, is the lead at Harvard's astronomy department, does that uh, give him more credibility uh, to sell this book? Or which is, by the way, called Extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth, which will be out on January 26th. Not that I'm shilling books for the guy, but I figure somebody might be interested in checking it out. Um, Does that lend credibility or does that actually hurt Harvard's name a little bit? Gosh, (laughs) the best way to answer that is some people will take it as improving the credibility. Other people will shake their heads and go, what's this guy on? Uh, He's a credible scientist. There's no question. He has a very distinguished astronomical career. You don't become the head of the Harvard Astronomy Group (laughs) if you have not got good credentials. So don't for a moment think he doesn't know his stuff. I just think he's reaching on this one. Uh, Carl Sagan once said, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And for this to be an interstellar spacecraft, to hang your hat almost exclusively on this very gentle, non-gravitational nudge that we detected, I just think that is really stretching it. But people will look at the book and go, gosh, this really is exciting, and see his astronomical credentials, and certainly will go, he must know what he's talking about. Yeah, you know what, I, I heard somebody say that even a clock that's wrong is right twice a day. <laughs> well, that's 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 true. You, you can't deny it. You, you've got to think outside of the box on occasions when right. we are looking at astronomical evidence, because there's a lot of stuff out there that until we see it more than once, we don't understand it. And there's, there's many, many. The first time we picked up pulsar signatures back in 1967, people immediately, and they wrote it on, on the pen chart recorder, LGM. Little Green Men. It was a very famous pen chart recording from 1967. It took us several months to figure out what the heck it was, but we did figure it out. So, you know, you, you want to think extraterrestrial and ET, but against the evidence that we have accumulated, even for Humeyamea, I think uh, an ET origin is a stretch. Anybody else have a, have a craving for Reese's Pieces? It's just me. Uh, Paul, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Take care, Kelly. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Always a pleasure having you with us. Don't forget, we broadcast live from 9 to noon, Monday through Friday on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.